This morning I want to reflect with you uh, in light of God's word on a rather unusual topic. We might call it the danger of theology. What danger might this be, you are probably asking. Is not theology, if we define it as the knowledge of God, an immensely valuable and good thing? You might therefore object that apart from some qualification, the idea that theology can be dangerous is anti-intellectual or simply not biblical. There may be dangers, you say, but they are not inevitably tied to theology itself. Fine. Let's rephrase our topic then as the danger of theology wrongly pursued. This makes clear, at least, that the danger we're concerned with and that Deuteronomy is concerned with is not inherent in theology itself, certainly not in God himself or knowledge of him, but the danger arises rather from the person, you, me, who has this theological knowledge. Let me add, while we're at it, one more tweak. Alongside the focus on how or why we gain theological knowledge, we should add how we hold this theological knowledge, how we use it. So our revised topic then is the danger of pursuing or using theological knowledge in certain ways. This might still seem a rather odd danger to you, but scripture says enough about it that our puzzlement with the topic suggests that we need to look more closely at it. And as we will see, there are a number of dangers that threaten both how we gain theological knowledge, our learning, and how we use it, our living out of it. What's more, these dangers apply to Christians of all stripes, not only to those who are pastors or theological students or whose vocation for one reason or another requires them to be in, as it were, the formal discipline and matter of theology on a daily basis. This brings us to the book of Deuteronomy, which has a great deal to say about how we come to know God and how we respond to him on the basis of that knowledge. It's worth noting, as we work our way into the text, that the book of Deuteronomy is addressed to the entire nation of Israel, not only to the leaders and priests and judges, but to the nation as a whole. So it applies to all of them, just as it applies to all of us, whether we are theologians or, formally speaking, or not. So we'll first look at Deuteronomy 6, beginning with the passage we read, then look at a couple other passages nearby to identify and hopefully learn how to avoid some of the dangers that attend theology. So as you know, the book of Deuteronomy's name comes from the fact that it's the second presentation of the law, the nomos. So in a very obvious sense, we have the representation of the Decalogue from Exodus 20 in Deuteronomy 5. More interestingly, we have the exposition of the Ten Commandments across the book of Deuteronomy, basically beginning at chapter 6 through chapter 26. So the bulk of the book is actually an exposition and an application of those ten words from Sinai to the wilderness generation that is about to enter the land. Now, the passage that we read from Deuteronomy 6 comes at the beginning of the the treatment of the first commandment, which is also the longest treatment of any of the ten. So, in other words, commandments 2 through 10 are discussed in chapters 12 through 26, and they get about a chapter or two per commandment, depending on which one we're talking about. The first commandment, by contrast, is discussed in six chapters, from 6 through chapter 11. Furthermore, if we look at the later commandments, which we won't do today, 
you'll often find that the exposition of, say, the fifth commandment will exposit, of course, the fifth, but will come back to the first. So what we're seeing is that the first commandment is very much a foundation for all that follows, both in the Decalogue and in what Deuteronomy does, what Moses does in Deuteronomy as he expounds the Decalogue. So we can conclude before we wrestle with the content of the first commandment that it is, in fact, the root of all the others. This was realized long ago by Martin Luther. Others have picked up on it since, and someone before him probably noted it as well. It is also Deuteronomy's exposition of the first commandment that gives the most attention to these dangers that I alluded to in uh, the title, the dangers of theology misacquired, misused, forgotten, put aside for some reason or other. You may have noticed in the very passage we read, in fact, right after the Shema, which in the terms of theological density in Deuteronomy is probably central, right after this theological peak comes this warning, lest, with the danger that at the end of the passage, Israel be annihilated by God for covenant infidelity. So the two, which we may not often put together, theological content and the grave danger of avoiding it, is a very natural pair in Deuteronomy. So, beginning in this first passage then, near the end, when, God, when Israel has come to know God in this way, he gives them the land, he gives them houses, he gives them gardens, vineyards, wells, on down the line. When they have received these good things from him, when they receive them as fulfillments of his promises to them, the first danger is to forget him. We might say this is impossible, but unfortunately it's not. There are some ways to understand it. We could think of it in terms of being satisfied with the gifts. Once we have them, and then forgetting the giver, because we no longer need him if we are in fact satisfied with the gifts. In this case, if Israel is going to set aside what it knows of God as the savior, the deliverer from Egypt, the lawgiver and covenant partner from Sinai onward and so on, it's clear that their danger involves being satisfied with far too little. All I need is a house, a well, a vineyard. But that's often how it works. When the oppression in Egypt is a distant memory, when the Canaanites have either been driven out and are so, so no longer a danger, or, as the case may be, if they're married and just tolerated, God-saving actions are irrelevant or taken for granted. In any case, they lose their primary importance. In so doing, it's not just that Israelites would be content with their house. In accepting those material gifts as good enough, they're walking away from abandoning the God who is the source of all good things and of life in the fullest sense, much more than their vineyard or their house or their uh, well can give them. Now, the prohibition, if that's the right word, for forgetting, do not forget, encourages Israel and us to actively maintain a sense of dependence upon God. If Israel's heart turns from the God who has bound himself to her in covenant, set her apart from all the other nations, called her to himself, their heart, and not only their body, will seek satisfaction in things that cannot satisfy and ultimately, and quite ironically, finding satisfaction in those things brings death, inevitably, because they embraced as the all that we want, 
separate us from God as the highest good. So if Israel is to avoid this danger, it has to trust God's goodness. And here's the key element, the opposite of forgetting, to regularly recall and to meditate on his acts of deliverance and his word that he gave, as the passage says later, for their good always. So in so doing, Israel's insufficiency, which it has to keep clearly in view, is set beside God's sufficiency in terms of what he's promised covenantally. He will, if they think that way, believe that way, act that way, remain uppermost in their minds, and as the verse we read says, Israel will in so doing revere him only, serve him only, take oaths in his name only. In short, they will find life in him and in him alone. There are more dangers, however. Dennis Olson calls these dangers that are highlighted in chapters 7 through 11, roughly, of Deuteronomy, the gods of death. It's not exactly a winsome title, but as we will see, it turns out to be quite true. These temptations, these false gods, threaten Israel's exclusive devotion to God as the only one who grants life. So a second danger is explored in chapter 7, especially from verses 17 onward. This danger is a temptation, quite different from the first one, to disbelieve in God's power and sufficiency in the face of human opposition, specifically, in this case, the entry into the land of Canaan. Now, unbelief had already brought literal death upon the wilderness generation. As you recall, there were two survivors of that generation that entered the land. Um, So you might think that Israel had learned its lesson. Whether it has learned its lesson remains to be seen, hence Moses' uh, exhortation here. For us, I want to caution us against giving a very pat, clinical, unthreatening, or that's so ridiculous I could never do it definition to unbelief especially thinking that our orthodox belief makes that danger non-existent for us. Israel doesn't risk rejecting belief in God for no reason. Its potential unbelief involves thinking that human agents, human means, human plans are either more powerful and more necessary than God, or more subtly, that they're necessary alongside God. We are more prone to this sin than we suspect. I'm not speaking, obviously, against the use of means in general, and certainly not against the use of the means of grace in our Christian lives or in the gospel ministry. But I am suggesting that we too easily assert that our help is in the name of the Lord when our attitudes and our plans and our strategies put the lie to that claim. Here some self-examination is necessary. When did you, or when did I, last let the ends justify the means by putting your strategic calculations for the success of a project or a plan above honesty? Why are our hopes for our church or for the cause of the kingdom globally so easily dampened when we see recurrent persecution or the progress of secularism? How do our prayer and dependence upon God, on the one hand, stack up against our self-empowered action, the weight we give to our Christian experience, our academic competence, our strategic vision? What is the relationship between our hopes for the gospel's progress 
and the confidence or fear inspired by whatever political power is in par party is in power. The first countermeasure that Moses calls Israel to use against such unbelief is identical to the one he prescribed against forgetting God. Israel must remember God's mighty deeds and covenant faithfulness on its behalf. We, of course, are to do likewise, but have the immense advantage of seeing many more fulfillments of God's promises and having seen God's ultimate self-revelation in the person and work of his Son. So, to the degree that we really believe that Christ is the King of his Church and that the gates of hell cannot withstand its advance, we will be able to resist the siren song of lesser means that would divert some of our confidence away from him. To the degree that we take God's power and holiness seriously, we will refuse to compromise truth or justice in order to advance what may well be a biblical goal. Unbelief really is a danger. This explains why, after the call to remember, in chapter 7, Moses cautions Israel not to meddle with the gods of the Canaanites or to dabble in their beliefs. Now, this warning clearly includes the ban on worshiping Canaanite cult statues, but the gods which Moses refers to are not limited to physical representations of misplaced trust, whether they're religious or other. As a result, these gods are probably more numerous and more present in our lives than we think. They are also subtle. Israel is not going to follow a god, so to speak, that walks up to it or to which it walks up and says, I'm here to destroy your soul. That would be crazy. The false gods that lurk here and there in our lives are deceptive and cunning. They present themselves in ways that appeal to our pride, to what we secretly think we deserve, even to our humility. Nothing, frankly, is off limits in terms of temptation. These temptations will not speak to you in terms of unfaithfulness, of sin, of danger. Quite the contrary. They will speak to you in terms of what is good, what promises to help you, which you have earned. So they lure us with visions of self-fulfillment, of satisfaction, of overcoming disappointment and insecurity, of breaking free of unnecessary restrictions, or quite simply of helping you achieve your goals and bring your projects to some successful completion. All of these false gods invite us to determine what is good by ourselves and for ourselves. Echoes of Eden, if you will. Moses' warning requires us to scrutinize our hearts and the world around us in order to avoid being led astray by them. In chapter 9, Moses presents a third danger, believing in the excellence of our actions and aspirations, or more bluntly, thinking that God's blessings are compensation for our righteous behavior. Now, if we had to pick of these dangers, one which we think we are most likely immune to, I suspect that for a number of us, it would be this one. We all know, if, even if we were perfectly righteous, God would owe us nothing. And furthermore, in our current state, prior to glorification, whatever level of sanctification we may think we have attained, merit is all the more clearly out of the question. Or is it? Despite our clear understanding of this theological truth, no one is going to suggest that they have conscientious objections to answer, question and answer 63 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
Despite the fact, then, that we understand it, let me caution you not to neglect this danger. It is insidious as are our hearts, which remain tinged by sin and all too prone to temptation. This variation of the danger to either misuse or reject our knowledge of the profoundly gracious nature of God's relationship to us is particularly subtle precisely because our theological background has properly insisted on this truth. In other words, yes, we've got that. I I know that. All of us know intellectually that our good works are without merit, but that God sometimes graciously rewards them. Yet how difficult it is not to misconstrue the idea of reward so as to obscure, just partially, its gracious nature. If others see us grow in grace, are we not inclined to attribute at least some of that progress to our faithful use of the means, to our sincerity, or even to our laudable desire for sanctification? If our ministry is blessed, are we not inclined to take at least some of the credit, a modest amount, of course, because of our efforts, our holiness, and our dependence upon God? You see how these things work themselves into something legitimate and corrupted. The point is this. We all too easily affirm that God graciously rewards obedience while glorifying ourselves alongside him in second place, of course. None of us would be so naive or so honest as to take all the credit for our growth in grace or for success in our pastoral or academic work. Deuteronomy obliges us to ask whether we desire and perhaps gain at least some recognition for the things that we achieve thanks to God's providence and blessing. An honest look at our hearts will reveal that the more we succeed, the harder it is to keep our self-evaluation from inflating in direct proportion to our success. This growth in pride, cloaked as it is in our Christian life or vocation, is one of the worst possible violations of the first commandment. We take to ourselves some of the glory that God says is rightly and entirely his. Moses' antidote to this temptation is blunt, but it is theologically flawless. Israel must remember that it is sinful, even habitually so. Moses even dedicates, in the section we didn't read, in chapters 9 and 10, the better part of a chapter and a half, to a recap of several theological disasters in Israel's recent history to prove his point. Now, even if we allow for the significant soteriological differences between most Israelites then And believers now, Moses' point stands. Human beings cannot, even when perfect, oblige God to reward their obedience. As Jesus said, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what it was our duty to do. So, our ego, our sense of identity, and our security must be weaned from this self-righteousness, violently, if necessary. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow our Lord. The life he calls us to lose is precisely, of course, the life we naturally want to keep. It's ours, our desires, our goals, our means, and our self-righteousness. In return, of course, he graciously gives us the only life that endures and the only life that satisfies. 
Before looking more closely at a couple other antidotes to idolatry, I want to add one more false god to those mentioned in Deuteronomy 6 through 9. This so-called god, I think, is particularly likely to appear in circles that value theological knowledge. As a result, conservative denominations, churches, and seminaries are not safe zones when it comes to temptations of this sort. The danger is this, that we delight not in the God to whom our theology bears witness, but in our theology itself. C.S. Lewis says somewhere, we may come to love knowledge, our knowledge, more than the thing known. This danger is at least two-edged. There's an element of pride because it's our knowing, one kind of idolatry already, and an element of more blatant idolatry of the intellectual kind because our knowledge satisfies us. That's all we need. Learning theology, here's the bad news part. Learning theology as part of a curriculum and as part of your daily vocation makes this a particularly pernicious danger. But, more bad news, Christians in other vocations can hardly presume that they will be spared these temptations. The reason is simple. Satan is particularly interested in attacking those who take God's word seriously and who want to know him through it, regardless of what they do from 9 to 5. Now, as we've seen, the danger is not theological knowledge itself, but the possibility that we might betray our theology by letting our hearts be turned, even in a small degree, away from the God with whom it has to do. The false gods that we worship in this context may be intellectual satisfaction, doctrinal purity, people's esteem for us as theological experts, or any other number of things. Self-examination is necessary here, too, because the forms that this false god takes are legion. Well, if the danger of letting our knowledge and experience of God be twisted into something that drives us away from him rather than drawing us to him, if that danger is so real, so subtle, so destructive, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live and learn and serve God while remaining vigilant against it. It will not surprise you, either in Deuteronomy or elsewhere, that there's no shortage of biblical guidance on how to avoid the multifaceted danger of idolatry. Let me brief summar briefly summarize with you what we've seen already in Deuteronomy 6, 7 and following, and then look at a few other passages. So, in chapter 6, Moses exhorted Israel not to be satisfied with the material comforts which will come to her when she enters the land, those good things she is to see as God's goodness, and he is to be recognized as their source. At the same time, Israel is to remember God's saving deeds on her behalf, exodus, wilderness, entry, and so on, and his covenant word to her as the bonds that tie him to her. In chapter 7, Israel is exhorted to again remember God's deliverance and to avoid dabbling in these things which might somehow enrich their theological worldview if they can add a little bit of nature worship or a little bit of this uh, into the mix. Chapter 9 added as an antidote to self-sufficiency the blunt reminder that sinful human beings cannot put God in their debt or claim his blessings as some kind of just desert compensation merited reward. To these antidotes to idolatry, I want to add two more. They both function by pushing our hearts, or better, pulling our hearts toward God 
and thereby, by, thereby weakening the attraction of all other false gods. So, first, Deuteronomy frequently uses a cluster of eight verbs to describe the relationship between God and Israel, and using those same verbs to describe the kinds of relationships Israel is not to have with all the other gods that the nations around them worship. These verbs are remember, follow, fear, love, serve, worship, cling to, and swear by. Each of these elements of spiritual life deserves a thorough discussion, but at a minimum, in this context, we should note that all of these actions and dispositions presume a defining relationship between the person and God. In this defining relationship, God is all-important, his words and his actions are all-determining, and he himself is supremely attractive and glorious and worthy. So, if God is indeed supreme, we must constantly strive to cultivate an exclusive focus on him as our greatest good, as the only one worthy of all that we are. Notice the superlatives. We have to use them. If we're going to use comparatives, we're in the wrong paradigm. In the context of the first commandment, we must turn our knowledge about God, theology apart from some living root, into knowledge of God by meditating on him, his word, his works in such a way that our lives as a whole, entirely, are lived in conscious fellowship with him and loving service of him. If we come back to the eight verbs just mentioned, we could reword Deuteronomy's exhortation, taking the book as a whole and putting it in the context of the whole canon, as follows. Remember God's word and works. Trust his gracious promises to us in Christ exercising and developing heart attitudes of reverence, love, and attachment to him as you do so. These commitments and values will, with his blessing, lead to a life that is increasingly aligned with his will and therefore resistant to idolatry in all its forms. A second and final antidote to idolatry is to reinforce, nurture, foster, our experiential grasp of the surpassing goodness of God. In God's grace, this will leave very little room for a divided heart. The more our heart is captivated by one thing, the less there is of it to be captivated by anything else. Here the Psalms are a uniquely rich resource in which their authors revel, frankly, in the unique and unequaled glory and worth of God as we know him in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some examples. From Psalm 4. And notice the, either the exclusive language or the superlative language. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. From Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not until something else takes their place or when something else intervenes. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that, I, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and my salvation. And from Psalm 63, your covenant love is better than life. 
These desires, these aspirations, these confessions invite us to taste and see that the Lord is good in a word. That nothing and no one compares to him. That he is the only source of life in all senses of the word. That he only can satisfy and that his grace is unbounded. If our hearts are full of God, if our hopes and confidence are grounded in his character and in his promises, then the allures of false gods, including those that spring up from within our hearts and minds, will have little chance to draw us away from him. The New Testament develops this same holistic, exclusive attachment to God in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Spirit as the pledge of our inheritance. In particular, the Christian life is life between the ages. If you've seen that graph in Voss's book, you'll know what what is being referred to. It's characterized by the tension of already and not yet, and it's therefore resolutely oriented toward the future. Time would fail us if we were to note even some of the passages which hope, joy, inheritance, and indeed consummation are interwoven with imperatives that bear on believers' attitudes and actions here and now. In a word, to summarize all that, the lives of believers in the present age are to be shaped by hope. In Constantine Campbell's words, this present age is filled with hope for the age to come. The trials, sufferings, tragedies, and death that characterize the present age are all set against the age to come, when trials will turn to comfort, suffering will turn to joy, tragedy will turn to triumph, and death will turn to resurrection. This hope, the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth, and the promise that believers will be like our Lord when we see him as he is, are so far beyond compare that no other good, no other goal, no other so-called God should challenge them. Well, let's draw these threads together. The lamentably fragile, often fragmented nature of our love for God reveals just how present the danger of having other gods is. Because if our love for God is not full, there is a reason for that. It's just not something that's growing but is perfect at the stage. This is a danger even in connection with our acquisition and our use of theology, as lamentable as that truth is. So when that is... A problem? We must repent of that sin, lament it, do all we can in God's grace to remedy it. More positively, all this is to be done, meaning the repentance and the the pressing on towards God, is to be done out of the conviction that he is infinitely and uniquely worthy of such pursuit, of such love, of such devotion. Let's close by summarizing what Deuteronomy and the rest of Scripture, very selectively, referred to, call us to do when we are faced with God's claim in the first commandment on all that we are, all our love, all our worship. We need to recognize in all humility that we cannot fully know ourselves. We cannot properly gauge the danger posed by our sinful hearts or the world or the devil. It is therefore imperative that we regularly, habitually put ourselves under God's word praying that he would, by his Spirit, show us what in our hearts is preparing to draw us away from him and to fight against it. 
as we become aware of our entanglement in sinful desires, aspirations, habits, we should also reflect on how they've prevented us from pursuing and loving him as we ought. In other words, analyze the problem. What, what went wrong? Critically examine your other secondary loves to ensure that they are properly ordered under this first primary love. We should, of course, at the same time meditate on God. This is the positive uh, practice that most directly confronts idolatry. Meditate on God who calls us to love him, as Deuteronomy says, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the creator, redeemer, consummator. He's revealed himself to us if we are believers, savingly in his son. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters, made us his heirs with his son, of all things. May our meditation on him be appropriately rich and deep. Finally, in light of especially the New Testament material I just referred to, meditate on the glory and beauty of the triune God in the new heavens and the new earth. This vision of the end of all things, the long-awaited consummation, is merely the beginning of life with God in all its fullness. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. May he be our all in all from now until that day. Let's pray. Our great God, as we stand under your word, we are painfully aware of how how far we fall short of the life that you call us to. Far from being an obligation, it is the highest good the best thing that we can imagine, and yet in our foolishness and in our sin, we uh, all too frequently are contented with lesser things. We fail to see your greatness, your goodness, your glory. So we ask, first of all, for your forgiveness. We ask, too, that your grace would enable us to repent uh, day by day, habit by habit, idol by idol, as we seek to uh, continually align our hearts Uh, so that they follow fully and entirely after you. Give us joy. Give us increasing satisfaction in you as we do so. Draw us towards yourself. May your spirit impel and pull, press and uh, invite us to greater and greater knowledge of you until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.